fear of uh, mutilation. This was an interesting one. Uh, fear of losing a part of your body. Uh, I don't know, when I read this initially, I was like, really? But the more I got into it, uh, per this article, uh, at least some of the fear, not some of, some of the fear of anxiety around animals or bugs or spiders or snakes or other creepy things arise from a fear of mutilation. You don't want to get bit. You don't want the leg to get ripped off when you're near the crocodile, right? And so there's certain, uh, the fear of mutilation would be a part of that. I, I just hate spiders because I hate spiders. I don't think about the effects of them biting me. But, but again, fear of mutilation is what the article said. The third is a fear of uh, a loss of autonomy. So the fear of either being immobilized or paralyzed or restricted or imprisoned, smothered. Uh, the physical form of this would be claustrophobia, um, but it extends beyond that to social interactions and things like that. Your fourth would be a fear of abandonment, fear of abandonment, the fear of rejection, the fear of loss of connectedness, of becoming not wanted or not respected or not valued by somebody else, be a fear of abandonment, and lastly, would be a fear of humiliation, making up this top five of basic fears. This would also be called the fear of, or the, the death of ego. So this would be a fear, fear of uh, humiliation or shame, a loss of integrity that you feel of yourself, a loss of the sense of feeling lovable or worthy. So each of these reach into the core of who we are. And they can expose certain things inside of us, whether it's, again, death or mutilation or loss of autonomy or abandonment or humiliation. And we can, we can look back on moments in our lives and we can see where maybe that's happened in our life, potentially, and maybe scars that we have because maybe we've experienced this to some degree. So this morning, we're going to hone in on the fear of abandonment. And we, we see this take place in the life of Jesus. Jesus experienced total abandonment in the hours leading up to his cross. And what he accomplished for us would also mean that we would never experience the type of abandonment that he experienced. So in this Lenten season, we're walking through John 17 through 19, and we're leading up to Resurrection Sunday. We're leading up to Easter in this Lenten season, and we're slowing down, maybe even pulling back from certain things to lean into uh, knowing and experiencing God. And so we're going to be continuing this time in this Lenten season, and we're going to be in John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. It says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he had just finished his prayer, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So he shows up. Jesus just finished this prayer. He'd just come out from eating a meal. He taught his disciples some, and then he prayed this prayer that we talked about last Sunday. And then in this moment, he's at this brook of Kadron. This is a, a meeting space that his disciples met at on the regular. They would meet at this place. It was where a small stream was. It would occur when there was a lot of rain that took place. And so they would gather, and they would meet there. And, and Judas was well aware 
of this meeting space because he would meet with the disciples there. And so he had gone to the soldiers. He had paid them, told them. They'd paid him. He had told them where Jesus was. And so they gathered together to bring these soldiers to where Jesus was. And John, John makes a few things clear. He makes clear who he brought. It specifically says that he brought soldiers. So they were of the Roman rule. They were a part of a cohort that ruled over the Roman Empire. And during this Passover feast, many of these Roman soldiers would be, would be called into Jerusalem as reinforcements to make sure that there was peace in this area because Jews would gather all over, from all over to this place to participate in this Passover feast. And so they were there to maintain peace. And then John also says that the, there were officers of the chief priests that came. These were temple police that also came to where Jesus was. So these folks we'll find in a few weeks were the ones that were assigned to the tomb of Jesus when he had died. They were responsible to protect that tomb. And so they'd come with lanterns and torches and weapons. They're uh, clanking along with all kinds of equipment, looking, you would think that they're about to arrest some fugitive. And they come with these weapons to this moment. And then we pick it up in verse four, and it leads to my first point, which would be John reminds his readers of who Jesus is before he goes to the cross. Verse four, it says this, then Jesus, knowing all that would, would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So at this moment again that John is reminding the readers of who Jesus is before he goes to the cross. This unique moment that John is zooming in on in this night, something he has been consistent with throughout his gospel, something he wants us to clearly see, something he wants us to not forget as we move towards the culmination of his gospel. He doesn't want us to miss what he's trying to emphasize here. See, Jesus is not some mere sacrificial, submissive lamb at the mercy of the military and, and religious leaders. He's not just submissively, sacrificially, just giving them whatever they want. There's this tension that John is providing for us here. That in one sense, that Jesus is the unstoppable lamb. 
And this is the focus that John has been providing for us throughout his gospel, that each gospel presents angles of who Jesus is. And and John is making very clear that he is an unstoppable lamb. All the way back to uh, to John 1 when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. There's this mission that Jesus is on, this focus that nobody can thwart and nobody can stop. He is this unstoppable lamb. And then simultaneously, he's struggling. He is struggling to trust his father along the way. See, friends, faith isn't easy. It was challenging at times for Jesus where he had to reorient his mind back on who his father was. In the same breath, faith oftentimes is not easy for us either. John points back to the, the moment where, where Jesus is in John chapter 12, and he says, now my soul is troubled. He's in this tension of, I want to trust my father, but my soul is, is troubled. This tension that he provides, he's, he has this firm resolution, but he's, he's weak, and he's trying to trust his father. He's, John's communicating his humanity and his Deity, and he wants us to feel this tension. And so Jesus steps forward to these ones. He's surrounded now by ones with, with weapons and with lanterns and well, all the things that you bring to arrest a fugitive. And he comes forward and he says, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He responds and he says, I am he. And in our reading, we can miss the punch that John is providing. It actually is not I am he in the original language. It's actually simply I am. It's the phrase that he uses, ego ami, is the word there. It's the same word that we see in John chapter 8 when, when this debate is happening with Jesus and the religious rulers. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they respond in that moment. If you remember several chapters ago, and they pick up stones to throw at him. Because he had blasphemed and he made himself out equal to be God. And so he uses this word, I am here. And John is communicating something profound. And it's up to us to consider the depth of what he is saying. He says, I am. And what do they do in response? You remember in the text that we just read that they they fell back and they, they fell down. They drew back and they fell to the ground. So why did they fall? Why did they fall back? Why did they fall to the ground? What is happening? What is John trying to communicate to us? There's two ways to interpret this. At minimum, it's Jesus disclosing disclosing himself to these ones, revealing himself to these ones. Oftentimes, these these self-revelations that Jesus gives are, are pointing back to a section of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 40 through 55 that commentators point back to often where um, the Israelites are in exile and they're, they're trying to figure out where Yahweh is. They feel like he's left them. They feel like he doesn't have the power to overtake the Babylonian gods. And in this chapter of Isaiah 40 through 55, he reveals himself. And he has these self-disclosing moments to reveal himself. So for example, in Isaiah 42, 5 through 8, it says this. This is what God The Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hands. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant 
for the people and a light to the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Throughout Isaiah 50 through 55, we see this reminder of, of God revealing himself to the Israelites. And in this moment, this is such wild yet clear declaration from the Son of God as he's willingly giving himself over to be arrested to rescue the world. He says, I am. Reminds them of who he is. And they fall to the ground. Some commentators would go a step further and say it's not just that he's revealing himself, disclosing himself, but it's also what commentators would call a theophany, a revelation of God being revealed in this moment. God making himself visible even for only a moment. This is a normal experience. A normal experience in response to God revealing himself would be people falling um, before God, falling prostrate before God. And Ezekiel chapter 128 would be an example of this, where it says, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so is the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell face down and heard the voice of one speaking we see it again in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When John sees Jesus, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Regardless, it is profound and smack dab in the middle of his arrest. Jesus is thunderously clarifying through the gospel writer John who is in charge. But the chief priests are not in charge. That the Roman, the Roman authorities are not in charge. That Jesus in this moment is in the driver's seat and he's fully in authority over all the moments here and for the purposes of his kingdom and the restoration of all things. He willingly submits himself to the betrayer and to the band of men to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. So John wants us to feel that. He's not just some submissive, sacrificial lamb at the mercy of some other authorities. No, he's in the driver's seat of all of it. And while being in the driver's seat, he's choosing to give himself as the rescuer for the world. It's profound that John is setting this up as he moves us towards the cross. And it's not just with his words, but in this moment with Malchus. I don't know if you caught this as we were reading it just a minute ago. I love Malchus. Peter is enraged. He's trying to control the moment. He doesn't know what to do. His world is unraveling before his eyes. And yet there's this guy, Malchus. He's a servant of the high priest. He's minding his own darn business. He's been woken up. He was probably asleep, and they woke him up to bring him out to this guy to arrest Jesus. He's probably still got some sleepies in his eyes, and, and he's just there along for the ride. And all of a sudden, he sees this rage cage Peter over here pull out his dagger and just cleanly cut his ear right off. I mean, imagine being Malchus. Imagine being Malchus. Just, he just fell to the ground in awe of this dude. And then seconds later, his ear has now fallen to the ground. And, and Jesus corrects Peter. He says, bro, this is not my kingdom. This is not how we operate. It's not how we roll. This is not the way of the kingdom. Of, this is not the way of my kingdom. That's the way of the kingdom of this world. That's not the way of my kingdom. 
You got to see it, it just even colored a little more. The gospel writer Luke, he, he fills it in a little more in Luke 22, 49 and following. It says about Malchus. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This is like gnarly moment with Malchus, right? Where Jesus, not only is Malchus in the thick of all of this, but Jesus, can you imagine just being Malchus? You get like blood squirting out of your ear. You're just kind of shocked, right? You're kind of like wondering if you're gonna pass out or not. And then Jesus, the one who's about to get arrested, picks up your ear off the ground and puts it back on his head. And you're just like, just watching the whole thing transpire. Again, Jesus is in the driver's seat. He is fully in authority in this moment. Which leads us to the next point, which is this. <clears throat> Jesus is betrayed by his best friends. You know, there's two layers of abandonment that we're going to see this morning. Again, a human fear on display. The first, we're going to see him betrayed by his best friend. And the second, we're going to see him um, forsaken from his father in heaven. We'll pick it up in verse 15. It says this. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am. I am not. Now the servant's and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So a few things happen. Um, we see a few things happen in all of the Gospels. Oftentimes, the Gospel writers will, will highlight specific stories or things that take place, and there's only a few times when we see the Gospels repeat themselves uh, with a, sp- a specific event. We see it in the cross. We see it in the resurrection. We also see it here. But in every, every gospel, we, we see the story of Peter and his denial. The point is not the raw fact that Peter disowned the Lord, but that he did so as a disciple who was so intimate with Jesus. And it shows us how repentance, not faithfulness, is the highest virtue of a disciple. Repentance, not faithfulness. We can oftentimes potentially see that faithfulness is the highest form and virtue of a disciple, and that's not true. It's repentance. It's a heart that turns, tenderly turns back to God. It's not about perfection. It's about repentance and turning and continue to turn our hearts to God. Humble contrition is the highest virtue of a disciple. We see these two individuals in this story. John's goofy. And that he oftentimes will write about himself in like the third person. He'll, he'll do this thing where it's like, is this you or not, bro? Like, what are you doing? Just say it's you. He does it again a little later on when it comes to the resurrection. Sometimes it's like, you're just being weird, dude. Just, just put yourself in the story. It's like weird. Whatever, we'll talk about in heaven. But nonetheless, John enters the courtyard because he knew the high priest But Peter had to wait outside because he didn't know the high priest. So John got in, and he was watching what was happening. Peter's on the outside. Again, Jesus has been arrested. He's now been taken before the high priest. We'll talk about that next week. And now Peter's on the outside. And a servant girl brought Peter in, and 
And he, she began to inquire, asked him questions. She said, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he stood there kind of gazing into the fire on a, on a cold night. I mean, he's processing. His world is unraveling. He's having these reminders of what Jesus said that he was going to die. And Peter never believed this was going to happen. He always believed the Messiah was going to be the rescuer. The Messiah was going to fix the world. The Messiah was going to take over Rome. He had no... Uh, understanding that this would be what would happen. Everything he dreamed of. I mean, he left his world behind to follow Jesus. Everything he hoped in is now unraveling. And he could do nothing about it. His world's unraveling. And, and some of us have been there. News about something that just hits you in the stomach like a Mike Tyson punch to the gut. And your world just unravels and you begin to be like, what in the world is happening? And you have no control to do anything about it. We have to enter into the emotional trauma that Peter's experiencing in this moment. Mere hours before, before everything went down, before the unraveling, before the chaos began as their feet were clean and their stomachs were full. They have this conversation in John 13, and Peter said to Jesus, it says in John 13, 37 and following, it says, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, you will lay down your life for me. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And here, Peter's nightmare is coming true as he's beginning to deny his best friends. Continue on in verse 25, it says this. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. We have this identical question where they begin to press Peter. Are you not connected with this dude? And Peter's like trying to move himself away. It's like, if Jesus is going to die, I'm not going down with him. And he begins to deny in this moment his best friends. We see this unraveling take place before, before us. What's beautiful, we're going to find the, this is the fracture. We talked about this in the marriage weekend several, a few months ago, where this was the fracture that took place in the relationship with Peter and Jesus. We're going to find the repair that takes place in a couple of weeks when we see his interaction with Jesus after his resurrection. But we have this narrative. This is the way that gospels are supposed to be read, as a, as a narrative, as a story. And what John provides is the profound events and something that can enter into our world in a dramatic and honest way. So I want to sit on this with you guys for our last handful of minutes together. And I want us to consider Maybe times where I, I was trying to decide which direction to go. We could go the moments of how we've been maybe betrayed or hurt by another. And I want to go a different direction. I want to consider how do the scriptures teach us to respond when we feel like God has hidden himself from us? We all feel it. We're not going to pretend like we don't. There's a thing throughout church history called the uh, dark night of the soul. where We have these moments where we feel like God has distanced himself from us in such a way that we feel alone. We don't know where God is. The moments when we need him the most, it feels like he's furthest from us. 
We're not going to, again, one of our values is to be authentic here. We're not going to pretend like that doesn't happen because it does. So what do we do when we feel like God has disappeared? Maybe in a time when you feel like you need him the most. And I want to, I want to flip over to, to Psalm 77. And I want to consider what this looks like for us. What does it look like when we feel like God has hidden himself? And how do we respond in those moments? Psalm 77 helps us digest this a little bit. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says this. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the, day, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Would the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? We'll pause there. We, we see these, this moment where the psalmist begins to say, he cried out in distress, groaned, spirit grew faint. I don't know if you've experienced it before, but you just feel so heavy. Your spirit, you just feel like you're out of gas. Begins to ask some very honest questions. Like, will God reject me forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished? Has his promises failed me? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has, has he in his anger withheld his compassion. Just this honest conversation with God, frustration for how he feels like God has interacted with him. And I'm, I'm thankful for the Psalms. I hope that we become thankful for the Psalms. It's also known as the book of prayers or the school of prayer. And the Psalms, they teach us to be honest. They teach us to not pretend. I don't know who told you to be pretend in your, in your faith, but we were never called to pretend. There was honesty baked into this psalm. So we see an honest approach towards God and frustration in light of the circumstances that they're feeling. And yet, the psalmist continues in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great, like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The psalmist continues in this moment where their heart is faint, where they're heavy, where they're groaning, where they're tired, where they're angry, where they're confused, where they don't see where God is, where he doesn't feel like he's anywhere close. What does the psalmist do? What does the scripture teach us? He says twice, I will remember. I will consider. I will meditate. 
He tries to get his heart right. See, God is not good because we feel like he's good because our circumstances are going in a specific direction. God is good because he is good. He's not good because circumstances are turning out in a way that make him look good. See, though hardship may exist, though trials may come, though troubles may beat down your door, we can trust in the Lord. He has never failed, and he will never fail. See, faith in God and remembering who he is becomes our sustenance in moments when we feel like God might be a million miles away. See, suffering will have meaning in the end. Your troubles and your trials will have meaning, and we might not be able to understand it fully until the other side, but we can trust in his unfailing love. We can trust that he will not leave us or forsake us. So the question I have, the follow-up to that, the, the scriptures remind us we can be bloody honest with our circumstances and where we are and what we're feeling, and we remember the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God from years of old. So the question then is, how do we know that God will never leave us? How do we know that God will never leave us? See, Jesus offers a guarantee that provides stability in all of our life. See, there's two layers, again, of the abandonment that took place in the hours leading up to the cross and the cross. The first was um, his abandonment from his best friend, Peter. And the second is with his father, There is a moment on the cross where Jesus cries out and declares, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, he feels a moment of abandonment. He's quoting Psalm 22 in this moment. He's crying out to his father. He's feeling abandoned from his father on the cross. He entered into the the bowels of abandonment that he feels. Robert Murray McChain, a Scottish minister, he said, in this, about this moment, he says, he was with, without God. Jesus was without God. He was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was taken from him. He had the feeling of the condemned. He heard as when the judge says, depart from me, you accursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Jesus feels on the cross, abandoned from his father. It was in what seemed like betrayal and abandonment where Jesus provides something beautiful for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it reads like this. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Of God. See, on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. And in this great exchange, he exchanged what only we deserved, and he took it on himself. And he exchanged what only he deserved, and he gave it to us. And so he was abandoned, so that we will never be abandoned. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that all who follow him will never once have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he took on our abandonment so that we will never experience that abandonment. See, Jesus was forsaken so that we will never have to be. He took 
our sin and our shame so that we'll never have to experience the effects of it fully. See, this is the hell that Christ suffered. That's why Tim Keller can say, Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. His death means no death for us. His resurrection means our resurrection. There's this thing as I close called the Congressional Medal of Honor. And it's the nation's highest military award for valor. It's presented by the president on behalf of the Congress. It's the only U.S. uh, service members who distinguish themselves as uh, risking their lives beyond the call of duty can receive this medal. Dakota Meyer, this individual on the screen, risked his life, protected his unit under the Taliban uh, when they were attacked in Afghanistan, and President Obama gave him the Medal of Honor, and he was awarded this medal on September 15, 2011. And the gospel tells us something profound. It tells us that though Jesus alone deserves the Medal of Honor, if you will, he chooses to give us that medal to wear it as if we were the one who fought in battle. See, Jesus took our place, and when he took our place, he took it fully and completely so that we no longer, we're not just some step-siblings of Jesus. When he buys us, he buys us. And we're, we're adopted, we're adopted. And when we're now his, we're his and covenant, not just a contract until we mess up like AT&T this last week and then you wonder, should you stay with them or not? This is a covenant that holds us fast to the ends. And when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It gives us courage to know that we are his and we are now his forever. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So in this Lenten season, as we journey forward, as we prepare our hearts for the day of his death and resurrection, we remember that we're not forsaken. On the contrary, we are remembering that we have been given the riches of Jesus, and all that is his is now ours. And our goal is to remember and to remember and to remember this is who we are. We were once one way and our flesh would like to remind us and accuse us and the enemy would like to remind us and accuse us and the world would like to remind us and accuse us and we have to remember the gospel that we are loved, we are cared for, we are chosen, we are adopted and we are his forever. And this is the good news of Jesus. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we would become the righteousness of God. He was abandoned so that we will never be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to bask, marinate in the truth that we are forever loved by Jesus. We recognize that we have an accuser that just wants to constantly bark at us and all the reasons that we fall short. Father of lies, question, did God really say? Did God really say that that's true? And Lord, by faith, as we remember the story of Jesus, we gather and we remember that you rescued us by your sheer grace and mercy. And we give you thanks for it. You have redefined us. 
You've adopted us into your family. And we give you thanks for it. Lord, as we enter into this time of ministry and this time of communion, I pray that you would remind us of the deep, deep love of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Those that are partaking,